Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Wither and I'm joined by my best man Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Lester Bangs? It's the wonder of nature, baby! Iggy Pop! <laughs> Uh, we could go all day. Oh, God, all day. This episode, you want me to light this cigarette? You want me to light this? <laughs> Come on, big time. <laughs> fucking idiot, fucking idiot, fucking idiot. Right, I didn't know we were going to do this. We got to get this out of the way. <laughs> big fuck. <laughs> big fuck. <laughs> we're very concerned, dude. Uh, yeah, yo. Sorry. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> we got to bring some levity to this because today, this episode is being released on February 2nd, 2022, which means that... Eight years ago this morning, we woke up to some truly awful news that we had lost the great Philip Seymour Hoffman, one of the one of the best actors to simply ever do it. I mean, if you are a fan of 1990s cinema, you likely grew up with Hoffman. As a kid, I started noticing him in his first small but memorable roles like Scent of a Woman, Twister, stuff like that. And then by the end of the decade... He's turned into a bona fide star. He's an actor's actor. Everybody wanted to work with him. Everyone wants to put him in their movies. He was Philip Seymour Hoffman. By all accounts, one of the best, kindest, most generous, most giving actors to his co-stars. He was in a lot of movies and never gave a bad performance. And eight years later, his presence is still greatly missed among modern film. This is a hard one for me because yeah, I have yeah. like a very like a very six degree separation from Philip Seymour Hoffman. I had the unbelievably privileged honor of getting to know the theater company that he was a part of in New York City called Labyrinth. When I was starting out as an actor, obviously there were... um like my particular favorites that I had. But I don't think that there was one actor who was currently working at the time where I started that influenced me more or I looked up to more because I really started this whole gig around 2005, 2006. And around that area, the person doing the best work was Philip Seymour Hoffman like mm-hmm. that? He was a true, true actor's actor. The quality of the of the work he was doing was what I wanted to do. It's undeniable how good he was. I had done a summer program with the Labyrinth Theater Company, which changed my life. It was just a wonderful, wonderful time. This was 2011. I signed up, I flew to New York, and I took part in this program, changed my life, and we got to perform and play in these unbelievably wonderful theaters, the Cherry Lane Theater, oh my God, the list can go on. The run is over, and we're having a big party in one of the theaters, and Philip Seymour Hoffman is there. I just didn't really know what to do. I was just, and I turned because I didn't really know where else to go. And I literally turned into another circle. In that circle were a bunch of people who I didn't know. And one person to my left removed was Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like, I always find that this works for me in, in networking situations or just social situations. If you're a part of something that's not really something that you're really a part of, but you are just there, just keep your mouth shut. Listen. Keep a smile listen. on your face. Yep. Listen. Be attentive. 
if you keep your mouth shut, eventually you just get accepted. Mm-hmm. And the person to my left that was between Phil and I had left. So now I'm right next to the man. And he just kind of turns to me and his raspy voice just sort of like, you an actor? And I just kind of turned to him and just like, yeah, yeah. So timid. And he turned his full body weight to me with his voice, just challenged me. Just goes, really? And I thought I had done something wrong. Like, I, I couldn't believe that. I Did I just piss off Philip Seymour Hoffman? I mean, oh, my God. <laughs> and I just turned and I gave it back to him. I just go, yeah. <laughs> and he's looking at me. And then he just completely breaks. And he got this big smile on his face. And he goes, that's fucking awesome. And he, like, <laughs> taps me on the shoulder as in, like, like buddy. And that was it. I honestly, at that time, didn't know what happened. I was just sort of like, <laughs> Phil kind of just yelled at me, and I yelled at him back. <laughs> he wants you to take ownership. Be proud of it. Announce it, it, yourself. Exactly. You are an actor. Exactly. And because yes. I was in the midst of a movie star who was someone who I respected and didn't take ownership, he gave me an opportunity to do that. That's why he challenged me. Mm-hmm. If you are an actor and you are on this journey and you take ownership for it, Phil never saw anyone on a different level. You were either an actor or you weren't. And when he saw you, he saw himself. It's still, it still, it gives me goosebumps. It makes me feel so honored and humbled to feel like I could even be in that same conversation <laughs> with someone like him. I value so much that experience that I had with him and uh, oh god and I to this day he is still one of my favorites and I'm so glad we're having this episode where we can dive into his work because one of the best to ever ever done it is here and that's what we're talking about yeah absolutely I mean what a story and that's it's all takes I mean you were touched by the hand of a god of one of the crafts you're studying yeah it's just after he leaves us, it's like, oh, God, you have to hold on to that forever. And yeah, I remember first taking notice of him. Like I mentioned, I was growing up with him. Not We're not the same age, but he was becoming a star as I was yeah. becoming a lifelong diehard movie fan. So like Boogie Nights, The Big Lebowski, I thought those characters were so different and such uh. purposeful, like, choices and breakouts from the smaller stuff he had done and then i remember by 1999 he was no longer that guy he was philip seymour hoffman i was seeing philip seymour hoffman in the talented mr ripley and magnolia and almost famous the next year all right let's go back to the source back to the beginning 1992 leap of faith it's a steve martin vehicle philip seymour hoffman he's one of the stage hands for martin's fake faith healer character it's kind of fun to watch him but i think the more memorable performance of 92 is scent of a woman he's playing george willis jr he's one of the shitheads who kind of like rats out chris o'donnell and kind of throws him under the bus and he has that great scene where he's on stage at the end and he's like flinching with his dad like you know leave me alone and this is a performance that pta said he noticed him in and he's like I don't know who the hell that guy is. I got to work with that guy. And what a cool thing to see this, you know, kind of small part. And, oh, God, it's so cool to go watch Scent of a Woman and imagine PTA watching this and going, I'm going to cast him in 
my first movie. We'll jump right to, you know, he has some stuff. He has like small parts in Money for Nothing, The Getaway, Nobody's Fool with Paul Newman. So he's, you know, he's clocking these credits, smaller credits and stuff. But then Heart 8 comes along, which is this, you know, again, we touched, we talked about this with PTA movie. Not a lot of people saw, but you have the birth of like the Philip Seymour Hoffman one scene wonder performance, or there's a lot of these movies we're going to talk about where he's in for maybe more than a scene, but even like almost famous, he's not in it that much. But when that dude's on the screen, he's the only one you're looking at. Listen, he's in hard eight for his one scene. He's the only one you're looking at. Oh my God. He is the definition of a scene stealer. And, and I don't mean that in a way of um, like, you know, stealing focus or uh, being disrespectful or rude. It's just, it's his energy. It's his choices. Everything about it is he commands your attention in the most organic of ways. He's not flashy. He's not like, but his presence and his energy and his commitment just completely take over. So uh, this is all to say that it's amazing that someone like PTA saw this from such an early part of his career and recognized you know, that whole mm-hmm. real recognizing real. That's what that was. That same kind of because you're, you're right. He's not like, oh, OK, so Twister, for instance, <laughs> like he's in there. Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton are the big names. He's not trying to steal no. the scene from them. He's just so giving. And, the, you know, he loves the ant. And oh, God, I love Dusty. Dusty. <laughs> oh, God, it's so that good. is that was my first introduction to ever seeing him. I mean, that was. The, yeah, I mean, I think I saw Scent of a Woman first. But yeah, I still that was the first big one. And Twister was one of my mainstays as a kid. I saw that movie Oh, like yeah. 10 times in theaters, I when it came out on VHS, I was rocking that movie all the time. And but even from the very first time I watched it, I loved everything about that movie. But Dusty, yeah. he was my favorite character in the whole movie. And we are giant <laughs> Bill Paxton fans and Bill oh, Paxton yes. slays it in that movie. But Dusty is just this side character like when there are there's no such thing as small parts nope. only small actors i mean oh my god is that ever relevant for you know all of like the beginnings of his work but twister he lights up with his positivity like every scene he's in he's got that smile on his face it's contagious he's not like a a stoner He's just kind of that guy, but he brings so much light and joy to that group. It's undeniable. It's so charismatic. You can't take your eyes off him anytime he's on screen. When when he's talking to, um, oh, God, what's her name? Uh, Star from Lost Boys. What's her name? Jamie Gertz? Yeah, Jamie Gertz. Jamie Gertz, yeah. Lost Boys. When he's talking to Jamie Gertz and he's like, you got to see it through a photographic lens. <laughs> He's so excited. <laughs> he's so excited to go, and then she's not, and he's like, "What's the matter?" <laughs> oh man, what a great, great film! And then, so yes, all this like goodwill, clocking these small parts, clocking them, and then he arrives very quietly as Scotty J and Boogie Nights. Yeah. He's admitted that he played him very intentionally, like a little boy, which is why he dresses like he's wearing the clothes of a twelve-year-old boy. And the thing, oh my god, I love him so much in this movie. You know, a lot of the early parts of the film, early character introductions are about people falling in love with Dirk Diggler's, you know, giant 
Diggler. So <laughs> there's a lot of emphasis put on when people see it for the first time. And the way Scotty J just stops breathing when he's like yeah. holding that boob bowl, it's so perfect. And you're just watching this guy. I mean, such a well-defined character. Every character in yeah. that movie is well-defined. But really, he just stands apart and brings this energy. No one else is doing what he's doing in it. And it's great. Like, Scotty J makes it out. Okay, you know, he's holding the cue cards for Don Cheadle at the end. It's just, I love the arc of Scotty J. Of course, the New Year's Eve scene is just an all-timer for him. That's oh. kind of, you can kind of see him, like, becoming a star in the front seat of that car. I'm a fucking idiot, fucking idiot. And just flipping out. And PTA letting him hold that. It's just letting him go again, again. Oh, man. It's perfect. The, it's a perfect performance. He allowed so much, like, mm-hmm. to allow that scene with him and Mark Wahlberg to be so awkward. Yeah, yeah. To, and, and to go through all of those levels, like, getting <laughs> up the courage, thinking it's okay to to try and kiss Mark Wahlberg, and then going for it, and getting rejected and then trying to save face, you know, excuses, shame and guilt until finally just needing to be alone and break down in a car and have, you know, that pity. You, this scene is altogether like what, a minute, maybe two, not even. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you get all of that. What a roller coaster to be able to go through. Oh, my God, a smorgasbord of emotions where all of us get it. Yeah, and the way that Wahlberg responds to him, he's talking to him like a 12-year-old boy yep. just tried to do this. Like, even the way he pushes it back, and he's like, you don't do that, Scotty. Why'd you do that? You don't do that. And he doesn't, like, punch him out. It's just, yeah, it's played. And then, you know, I'm really drunk. I'm really yeah. drunk. Yeah. Are you or are you just like trying to save face, dude? Oh, man. Then, yeah, sitting him in that car. I love that you brought up that that was the choice he made to play it as a 12-year-old boy because Mm -hmm. really, let's look at it. If you get cast in that movie, like you're not in that many scenes. Like he's really not. Right. And a lot of Mm -hmm. those scenes, he doesn't really have lines like the the boom shot. Right. He's just staring at him like. (laughs) You don't need to overcomplicate it. Mm -mm. You just make like one big choice. It physically, uh, vocally, uh, however you want to do it. So, all right, I'm going to play every scene like a 12-year-old boy. So you see the way he kind of like scuffles his feet when he walks. He's very uncoordinated. Yeah, doesn't yeah. know what to do with his arms. And then when he's emotionally affected by the stimulation of seeing uh, uh, Mark Wahlberg, what that does to him. And now he can't talk. And he just lets it all happen, but that's all it is, and it's so memorable. It's also what makes it damn near impossible to record a podcast like this because I want to keep talking about Scotty I know, J. We got to keep. We, we got to move, move on. on. We got to move on. <laughs> we got to keep going, and this is it to like throw you know shade at any no, of the characters because we very exciting. Dude, we could just do the PSH PTA collab, and that's a more than enough to fill a podcast. But but I'm going to move on, and I got to see a few movies for the first time researching this pod the first of which was next stop wonderland in 1998 it's like one of those great home style indie new york movies from the 90s that i love so much it's like it has hope davis as a star you know she was in a lot of those movies hoffman plays her on again off again activist boyfriend it again not in a lot of scenes but really funny and very effective at what he's doing his next big one that gets a lot of attention is again not doing a lot not in a lot of scenes but you don't watch the big Lebowski and forget about Brant. 
you remember Brant's reaction to Tara Reid, what she proposes to Jeff Bridges out there. You remember, you know, the way he opens those doors oh. when the Big Lebowski is sitting by the fire. You remember in the limo, you know, we're very concerned, dude. I mean, you remember all of that, the laugh. It's just making these choices, whether or not he's collaborating with, hey, PTA, I'm going to wear these like tank tops that are three sizes too small. Cool, cool. I, I, I don't know. In the Big Lebowski, whether he's making these choices, do this like absurd laugh, whatever it is, we remember all of it. And this is a great, great flex with very little to do on screen. And what I love about this, and and this is this is a hot take. I think that his performance that is the most over the top performance of anyone in that movie, <laughs> and that's why it's memorable. Is because he is a side character. He's not stealing focus, but. Having that bit, because he's also so blinded by this love for the real Big Lebowski. <laughs> yeah. You know, his whole entire life is about this other person. Yeah, he's the type of servant assistant to this gazillionaire dude who'd probably do just about anything that's asked of him. Yes. Like, literally just yep. about anything. And probably not raise any flags or ask any questions. Just, yeah, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Right away. I will <laughs> lie. If there's a lie, I will cover up what never needs to be covered. There will not be a single bad word. I will spin anything. And so whenever something uncomfortable or not right is happening, that's when you get like the, uh, 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 yes, yes, well, 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 we're going to. Yes, yes, yes. Have you seen the movie Happiness by Todd Salant? No. The one that also came out in 1998. Man, this is this movie's insane. Do I wa don't watch this movie while you're eating lunch. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, Todd's Lots likes to push the envelope a lot. Welcome to the dollhouse. His movies are very charged. This is in this Philip Seymour Hoffman plays a sexually repressed, like cubicle office worker who makes these horrible, filthy crank phone calls to Laura Flynn Boyle. It's just, it's a really, <laughs> oh my it's a God. really, really out there uh, movie. Uh, yeah. It, <laughs> I, <laughs> if people have seen it, they'll know what I'm talking about. But you get to, you get to see a lot of Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie. Just a lot. Happiness. Uh, Roger Ebert really, really liked this movie and talked about it often. Talked about everyone in it, including Hoffman and the bold choices they were taking in the story. Oh, I have to see it. I have to see it. If, if I mean, everything he does was bold, but if it's that bold, oh, I, I need it. There is no way in hell this movie would even be read by anyone who has money to make a movie yeah. nowadays. Never, let alone get made. This is, it's NC-17. Like, this is as, this is hard button pushing stuff. Wow. So you don't, you don't forget happiness when you see it, but whew. Oh, that's incredible. Oh, yeah. One movie you and I both watched for the first time for this episode was Flawless. Yeah. 1999, directed by Joel Schumacher. D certainly directed by Joel Schumacher. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. like, take it easy, Joel. <laughs> it's so crazy. But he plays Rusty here, and I, had I hadn't seen this. His chemistry with Robert De Niro was a lot of oh, fun. It was just... I loved it, man. I'm floored by his performance in this. And there is no denying the utter humanity of Rusty in Flawless. He embodies this character so, so fully that it is just astonishing to watch. But there's one cool thing I, I, I want to just put in about this movie that I thought was very cool speaking to the tone because it's very much a, uh, when you watch it, it's dated. It's a very, very dated uh, time period response to 
the way a macho guy looks to a gay person. And that's that's kind of the the, the movie. Sure, sure. But um, the defense mechanisms that both Robert De Niro and Philip Seymour Hoffman have with each other, I found very interesting because when they connect, they're they're touching their human sides. Yeah. But when they fight, they only use, you know, Robert De Niro kind of spouts off with homophobic slurs. And transgender slurs. That, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's his go-to. That's, that's, his that's go-to. what's easy for him, using, using all that horrible language that you can guess. Yes, yeah. all of that. And what Rusty does is he uses phrases. Like one of my favorites is, life's a bitch, so I became one, honey. <laughs> like and he uses all of these because you realize that in order to make it through his existence with the negativity and hate that's come to someone who's like him, you have to build up a wall mm-hmm. and you use these phrases as a way to cope. And I just found it so fascinating that every time they boiled down to their meanness they always resorted back to those whether it's the homophobic slurs or the phrases as a way to protect themselves i thought that movie showed that in a um in a very human way and i appreciated it yeah and it's one of his biggest roles up until that Mm -hmm. point i mean it's definitely a co-star lead de niro is the lead but the movie it's not a perfect movie but the movie does succeed very well when it's the two of them in a room together that's what the movie is yeah that's when it works really really well in your own it's almost like you could have like a really good play based off that oh. material and there's a lot of you know it's a joel schumacher 90s film there's a lot of uh craziness going on that doesn't really need to be in it but in terms of his performance and his work with de niro very good very alive like if you take away that whole entire crime plot of it and just leave it with right. like the, the the human components of that movie i think it's great but yeah you kind of got to you kind of got to go through what Schumacher's given you, which was probably also a part of the times. It's part of like, all right. Exactly. Like, exactly. We, we'll, we'll make this movie, but you got to give us like, you know, the action, you know, like what can't drugs be involved? Like something. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Next up is one that holds a very special place in my heart. We just talked about it on our Paul Thomas Anderson episode. It's Phil Parma in Magnolia. He said, this was probably the character that was most like him and his personality in real life. And he loved the movie and got his scenes with Jason Robards that are so touching. And I mean, oh. his got that scene with Julianne Moore when she's flipping out, you know, don't call, don't call. And he's just sitting there crying. And then, of course, when he's standing in the background, but still acting his ass off when Tom Cruise has that bedside confessional like this is. And, and then, I mean, of course, there's the morphine scene, which is like. That that's a grown man really, really crying yeah. as he's doing that. And that is the way he's just choking on his tears, making that decision of, oh, boy, now's the time. Like, I really, really love this performance and maybe his most humane performance of his career. I love Phil. I totally. Yeah, I agree with that. It, it, it's ah, this is a tricky word to use. It's simple. Mm-hmm. And he always kind of boils down, no matter how specific and uh, bold his choices are, he finds a way to bring it down to simplicity, which is where we all connect with. And um, I think the telephone scene where oh, he calls and, and and he's like, I don't really know how to say this. I don't really know who I'm looking for. But, you know, like there's just a reality to that that anyone could relate to. Well, and that 
that conviction of like, you know, the scene in the movie where the guy called, he's like, this is that scene. Yeah. This is the scene. Yeah. You gotta help me. You like, you, I, I remember seeing that in the theater and being like, oh, I can relate to that. I, I've seen those scenes in movies and you really want this guy to help him. Like, yeah, please, please. And I love that you brought the, when Tom Cruise is having the big scene with him and he's in the background. Yeah. Again, doing whatever y- that you're doing in the background, you're not stealing focus again, but you are so present and alive with the reality of what's going on. Like, that's just contributing. That mm-hmm. is just making that scene even better. And oh, part of him probably wants to go over there and be like, hey, you know, this this dude has like hours to live. So why don't we keep it probably best to keep it civil? I mean, he's like a nurse. He's yeah. an in-home nurse. And then immediately Cruz is like, you, you know, starts saying really nasty stuff and Phil can't help but like kind of shuffle in the background like oh my god should I should I be listening to this like I have an obligation to my patient but this is not my business uh but now I'm in it because he asked me to be in it there's a lot going on here and it works really well and just it's fun to watch him and Cruz together because they're going to be together down the line and it's a completely different dynamic and it really kind of boils on the theater training as well because like when you're on stage sure and the and you're, you're on you have to be you on you have to yes. be all in what are you doing when it's not about you that is furthering your emotional life and then the story Jump all the way back to episode 11 of What Are You Watching? Favorite films in 1999. We gave a little love to Freddie Miles. Yes. In The Talented Mr. Ripley. Oh, God. What just a, I mean, coming out the exact opposite of Phil. You know, Phil's so, like you said, simple, yep. quiet. And the the first time we see Freddie Miles, he's just this, like, chauvinistic, very out there personality. But, oh, this, doing great with Jude Law, doing great with Matt Damon. Uh, oh, man. Freddie's kind of the, he's the guy that knows who you are. Yep. He's got you figured out. And he, that makes him a big threat. And that is why I like him, because that whole dynamic, you know, how's this? How's the peaking? How's the peaking? Uh, oh, my God. It's one of my... That, <laughs> oh, that's, that's an all-timer line from his career. I, I, I love that line so much. Tommy, 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 Tommy. <laughs> and he is not afraid at all all fearless in everything he does in every single scene because he just doesn't like matt damon's character from the bat not at all because yeah he is he he wants jude law to himself it's very simple Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. he starts to recognize that things are wrong and he is not afraid to probe to go to like all these choices and finally we get to that last scene where he's playing at the piano just hitting those notes agitating Matt Damon's character and with like the eye rolls, like what he does with his eyes and his gestures, like he is able to let you know exactly what is going on inside him at all times. And there's so much attitude. Yeah. And it's of a certain style of a certain class. He's a certain class of guy. Like he's got money. Right. Oh, when he's just staring daggers at him, listening at the phone booth when he's got the headphones on. Yeah. And exactly. he's just that's one of the meanest looks I've ever seen anyone give anybody. <laughs> I, yeah. That's what makes their dynamic so interesting is because they both want the affection of the same man. Yep. Yep. 2000, State and Maine. I love David Mamet. I love State and Maine. This movie's about an L.A. film crew that invade a small New England town so that they can film there. And Hoffman is, he's a screenwriter of the movie, Joseph Turner White. And he's the only one in the crew who actually starts to like the small town better than the L.A. people. And, you know, this isn't 
a movie that gets talked about a lot, but he's really, really goodness. And back to kind of simple home style Hoffman. I, I love him in this. Great flex of Hoffman's career. We move right along to Almost Famous, Lester Bangs. He's playing yeah. a real character here. But, I mean, we were talking about, you know, popping up in this scene, popping up here for one scene. Again, he's not in this that much, but every choice is just so perfect. I love the way he just hangs up on him. Kids on drugs, I swear. You know, who you yeah. listen to? Uh, Stillwater Clink. Like, <laughs> kids on kids drugs. Kids on drugs. You know, he's like the the dad figure of the movie in a lot of ways. He's the the great creative influence. It's just helping guide him along. He's not here to save you, but he's he'll hear, he's here to help you out a little bit. And it's it's just great how much energy he brings to him right away. And he is blessed with, I think, probably some of Cameron Crowe's best, if not the best dialogue he's ever written. Yeah. Like yeah. He, so he, he has gold to work with. And when you give an actor like him gold, it's that there's a reason why when people talk about this movie, he's always brought up because, yeah, he's not he's only in like two or three scenes. But those scenes are memorable. But you know what I, I love about this movie and and he does this with any time he's playing a real person is he absolutely captured the essence of Lester right uh his cadence his attitude but he's also still undeniably Phil like there is nothing yeah, exactly he he captures the full essence of that person but you know that he cuz he can't deny that that's who like he's He's Philip Seymour Hoffman. I am not Lester Banks, but what can I bring to it? What can I take from him and meld something together? And that's why I think his performance resonates so much in that way, because he is not trying to imitate. He's just trying to illuminate. Well said. Well said. Two years later, we get the first Philip Seymour Hoffman's starring performance. This is in a small movie, a great movie, but a small movie called Love Liza. He plays Wilson Joel, a guy reeling from the suicide of his wife. And we watch in the weeks and months after this as his demons start to swallow him. And this is, you know, it's a gentle early 2000s indie movie. I love that Hoffman did these small movies even as he was getting incredibly famous and getting offered massive paychecks for big movies. He's still going back, helping out a friend, starring in this movie, and it is, wow, it's a really, it's a disturbing performance. And so when Philip Seymour Hoffman was becoming a thing and people were like noticing him, I had friends who were, have you seen that, like, who's that guy in The Big Lebowski? He's hilarious. Who's that guy who's stealing scenes and almost famous? I would be the friend who's like, oh, yeah, that's Philip Seymour Hoffman. Check this out. And I would slide the DVD of Love, Liza, and I'd be like, check this out. You want to see something crazy? And that's always what I've like tried to do is go to these deep indie cuts. And this is, if you have not seen this, this is simply one of his best performances, without question. This is it, man. This is as good as acting will ever get. Yep. That is just the truth, man. Like it, It's everything. It's disturbing, but it's also kind of sometimes it's kind of funny. I don't want to say too much about this one because I want people to check this out. I because I, if we say too much, it's going to we're just going to put expectations onto it. Just go see Love Liza. It's as of right now, it's streaming free on Amazon Prime. It's not an easy sit, but oof, you won't regret it. And and if you're a Philip Seymour Hoffman fan at all, then you 
it's a must. You got to see this. It's so good. Yeah, it's only 90 minutes long and we are choosing our words carefully, like saying demons swallow him and stuff. I don't want to describe the roads that Wilson Joel goes down because you should discover them. But yeah, it's a it's a really, really good movie. Um, Incredibly sad, but he is completely game and just embodies this poor guy going through a horrible time. And yes, there are moments of humor because that's what life is. Life, you know, we're flawed people. Like we have different facets of our personality and it's, that's what makes the performance so lived in is that he is a human being who's not just a universal sad sack or not a universal X or X. He's got different facets of personality because he has no idea what's really going on, but he's also trying to keep a certain level of like, no, I'm okay. And watching him battle through that it's so so oh it's it's awesome it's so good and just his eyes man his eyes in that movie are are great to look at next up we've talked about it very recently on pta you know why don't you calm down shut the fuck up what's the problem (laughs) (laughs) the mattress man like this is a performance where you get a friend who calls another one. And he's like, hey, Phil, I got something for you. First scene, I'm just going to put you on a phone. Just lo- absolutely lose your goddamn mind. <laughs> and it works so well. We were watching him just shut, shut, shut. I don't know how you describe Punch Strong Glove. We just tried in that long episode. But God, I love the mattress, man. And this is definitely everything he does is such a highlight in it. Like, why is he getting his hair cut in his final scene? Yeah. yeah. And he's Because it puts him in that stupid ass robe that we have to wear when we're getting our hair cut. He just wears it throughout. The, oh, God, Dean, I love the mattress, man. And that phone call, that that's the most famous scene probably from that movie. And yeah, what's so funny about it is you're watching two grown men just yell at each other's loud. <laughs> as they can and with no conclusion <laughs> and what they decide to get offended by it's like did you just say go fuck myself and yeah like, well, yeah that was like that's what you're gonna kill him because he said that yeah that wasn't good you're dead you're dead you're dead <laughs> and he only pays those guys doesn't he only pay him like a hundred bucks and he's like expenses are your own <laughs> to, like, fucking drive from utah to la he's like expenses are your own but i'm gonna pay you a hundred bucks like what oh. <laughs> make sure you put gas in that car like Oh, my God. It's so good. Oh, man. I kind of glossed over this because we're just cruising along. Like, 2002 is a banner year for Phil because he's starring in Love, Liza, stealing scenes in Punch Drunk Love. He's in something. He's in a big movie with a small role, Red Dragon, playing a total goon, a tabloid ambulance chasing shitbag goon, Freddie Lowndes. And he is going for it the whole time in this. 2002 isn't done. But he uses this movie just to, it's like he's getting his stock up. Like he's in, he probably got paid well. He's with some co-stars. I just, I love that he's in, he's in this movie with Edward Norton. And then a few months later, he's in another movie with Edward Norton. Totally different dynamic. But yeah, Red Dragon, he's having a lot of fun in it. <laughs> being Dude, tortured by Ray Fiennes. <laughs> that torture scene, man, like the, the, the best thing about that scene is that it he's so vulnerable in it that it really makes you think about if you were in that situation. Yeah. He's yeah. he's bargaining. He's doing whatever like he's trying to do like intellectually do what needs to be done to make this other person let him go. Mm-hmm. Like what do I need to do to have this person let me go? I'm going to tell him what he wants to hear. I'm going to play ball. I'm going to try to make him see that he doesn't need to do this. 
he plays all of that. And that's why uh, in the beginning I go, the yeah, yo, because it's this scene where, where Rafe is just kind of going and he goes, do you want to see this? He goes, yeah, more than anything. And he just keeps going, yeah, yo. <laughs> now do you see? Oh, God. Now do you see? Mrs. Oh. Leeds changing. Do you see? Oh, God. <laughs> It's absolutely petrifying, but it that it's because of him. It, I mean, both of those. That's an acting like masterclass, to be honest, right there. But like in a psychotic way, like, all right, we're gonna put you two great actors in a really fucked up scene. Go, <laughs> and they totally go for it. But I, you know, he's with like Edward Norton's character hates him in that movie because yeah. that's just the way the movie's set up. But then they go to playing best friends in Twenty Fifth Hour, a great gr- one of my favorite Spike Lee films. Hoffman's playing Jacob Linsky. <laughs> He's a private school teacher. And I i mean, this is one of my favorite. It's always been one of my favorite performances of him because, you know, he's a very modest guy, kind of meek, but he's also the smartest person in the room. And he's certainly not the most confident, but i he's just a good natured guy who's, you know, he's that friend who's always kind of saying the good hearted, obvious stuff. Like, wouldn't it be nice if he could bring his dog to prison? Like, what? Like. <laughs> can't take a dog to the who scout jake and uh, you know when he's talking to anna packwood she's like you like dj dusk and he's like uh yeah uh i prefer his earlier work yeah (laughs) what oh man yeah i mean this is a a very deeply uh, of course very deeply flawed character some of the choices he makes are not things i agree with but that's what makes him human and that once he crosses the point of no return in that club and we have that you know double dolly shot of him just looking in the camera like I just ruined my fucking life. Oh, man. I love Jacob. I love watching Jacob with Slattery and with Monty Brogan. They make a great, odd, but very great trio. They do. Oh, they really do. And the conflict that's going on within him from the second we see him, Mm -hmm. like the way he's in that class and the way he's already having feelings about one of his students. Right. And he's just not afraid to embrace the awfulness of it with with it and the costuming of that is so great because putting him in that New York Yankees hat and the in his baggy pants it, he is that guy he is that teacher yeah, and like the jacket that like your grandfather wears like yep. that's what he's taking into like the hottest club in New York City the night before his best friend goes away to prison. <laughs> like, this is how you dress, but he doesn't know to dress any different. And, like, no yeah. one comments on how he's dressed. It's like, uh, that that's Jake. Like, wh- why am I going to tell Jake how to dress? Like, it's, he's a teacher. It's fine. Th- that's exactly yeah. right. And because he is so human, you are, like, he lets you into where you can give yourself, like, that, oh, man, this guy's in a tough spot. And then when he, yeah, then when he does it, you're like, that's it. You fucked up, man. You really fucked up. There's room for empathy here. And um, and that's a tricky thing to pull off. But I just want to say about this movie, this movie might be the one movie I recommend everyone to see out of like not necessarily just because of his performance, but just as a film throughout all of the movies that we're talking about. This movie's amazing, man. You want to go in on 25th Hour? I've seen this movie like 50 times. I'm not kidding. This is the most important film ever made about post 9-11. It was one of the first, and it remains the most important. I could talk for hours about this film. I love this movie. I had no idea. When you sent me, we texted yesterday because I was watching it, and I hadn't seen it since it came out. Again, I needed to rewatch this. 
Yeah. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And and you sent me, you wrote a blog, like 82 reasons to love this movie. That no one talks about. You're goddamn right. I had no idea that you felt so strongly about this movie. Oh, and my God. I understand why. Like, this is a movie that, like, this is essential viewing. Holy shit, what man. I couldn't believe how good this was. I think Spike Lee's best film objectively is Malcolm X or do the right thing. Mm -hmm. I think those are like yeah. craftsmanship of those are really on point. My favorite is tied. It'll always be he got game in 25th hour. Those are the ones I've seen the most. I love 25th, 25th hour. I cannot explain to you all how fucking crazy it was when so many movies post 9-11 or training day is delayed three weeks Yeah, because it's supposed to come out like September 20th something 2001 takes place in LA but because it's so like such an intense movie they delay it uh the World Trade Center is being taken out of the Spider-Man trailer all this stuff is happening and this is pissing Spike Lee off Spike Lee's like you're trying to pretend like this didn't happen so then he's, I mean, from, from the opening credits, he goes, 9-11 happened, it changed us, look, look, look. And that great scene in one shot with Barry Pepper and Hoffman oh. just looking out over ground zero. And Hoffman just goes, holy shit. And that's, that's I remember seeing that in the theater, sitting next to my mom. And almost at the same time, with Jacob Belinsky, we're like, holy shit, when that camera just pans up. And they have the whole scene, and Spike Lee's like, yeah. Fuck you all who are trying to pretend like this doesn't exist. Literally, fuck you in the mirror. Like, fuck you, Osama bin Laden. Fuck. I mean, when that happened, when he said, fuck you, Osama bin Laden in the mirror, and they kept, I, I mean, I was stunned, stunned. And the fact that it was completely ignored by the Academy, it's an absolute joke. I'm glad Spike Lee's a little more, he's been embraced by the Academy a little bit more, but God, they missed the boat on him so many times. I think this is Edward Norton's best performance, if, uh, one Whoa, of, if not the best. Yeah. Rosario Dawson, everyone. I could talk about this Barry movie Pepper. forever. I love, love 25th Hour. And, and, the, and there's a, like that scene by the window, what was breathtaking about the writing of that is that it starts with the two of them, like, like Philip Seymour Hoffman says, you know, the time says the air down here is bad. And then Barry Pepper's Fuck like the times. The post, the post. <laughs> yeah, the post says it's fine. And then he goes, someone's obviously lying. And that's funny. Mm -hmm. But really, that little quip right there is a complete symbol for their conversation that they're about to have. Barry Pepper's yeah, like yin and yang. Yin and yang. And that's that whole entire thing all the while set over the ruins of what just happened. I don't know, man. For my money, in terms of writing, performance, construction, and like meaning as a one take scene, there is so much to unpack. Like that B word, brilliant. If we use it, we bastardize it, but that's a brilliant fucking scene all around. Yeah, I've written about that movie so much on my blog. I wrote about that scene and literally titled the essay Why the Why 25th Hour is the most important movie ever made about 9/11. And that's like the screenshot I have of the blog article of them standing at that window cuz no one was talking about this. Yeah, um and uh, yeah, we could keep going. We could go and go and go. Yeah, Love yeah, 25th yeah, got, Hour, yeah. one of my favorite movies of that decade. So we're going to bring it up to 2003 with a movie called Owning Mahoney that has eluded me in my Philip Seymour Hoffman filmography, and this is a tragedy. I need to see it. I will see it as soon as this podcast is over. Maybe we'll talk about it on the next one, because this is a movie that you told me is an absolute must 
and I just quite didn't get to it before we recorded today. So please tell the world about this movie that I cannot wait to see. Well, one of the reasons why it's eluded you and a lot of other people is that people don't let us see their fucking movies sometimes. This movie's available nowhere. I mean, you can't even rent it for a fee. It's available nowhere. I found, like, a bootleg link on YouTube, and that's what I sent you. And I don't usually... I mean, Tarantino's given me... (laughs) He's like, if the filmmakers don't want you to see their movies and someone's uploaded it to YouTube for free, then fucking watch it there. I don't care. So, I I mean, I want to watch your movie because... Dan Mahoney, this is a true story, is one of the best Philip Seymour Hoffman performances. This is a true story of a Canadian bank worker who frauded the bank he worked for <laughs> to fuel his insane gambling addiction. I mean, he lives in Canada, but he travels to Atlantic City or Vegas on weekends to throw away piles of money. He goes there so much that when he goes to Vegas, the Atlantic City people represented here largely by John Hurt in a great performance as a casino owner. They know about it, and they're like, we got to get Mahoney back in AC. What are we going to do? Oh, God damn it, we got to get him back. Everyone loves him because he's just a, a shitty gambler who can't help, like, degenerate fucking gambler. You hear that a lot. This is the personification of one. And, you know, well, you know, Hoffman played addicts a lot, and he did it very yeah. effectively, and this is obviously something that's difficult to talk about based on how he left us, but this is one of the best portrayals of an addict of of anything, addicted to a substance, addicted to anything that I've ever seen. So yeah, I'm very excited for you to see it. I'm not certainly not upset at all that you haven't seen it because this is available nowhere. Like you can't even rent, can't even pay $5.99 to watch it on YouTube. Like let us see your movies, people. This is one of the greatest Philip Seymour Hoffman movies ever. It's a very small movie, so I understand not a lot of people have seen it, but Back in the day, I would give people the one-two punch of Love, Liza and Owning Mahoney as like the deep cut indie Hoffman movies. And they always hit. If you're a fan of his, you will love both of those movies. Next up for him is Cold Mountain. He's reteaming with Jude Law here. Again, totally different dynamic than what they had in the talented Mr. Ripley. I really this is kind of a theme of his career because he's he worked so much and he worked with so many people that you'd be able to see him, you know, reteam with someone way down the line. And I'm just a huge fan of it. And he's great in it. Everyone is. I love the scene with Natalie Portman, like these little one-off scenes that mm-hmm. happen throughout mm-hmm. the movie. I'm a huge fan of movies that move like that. If you, if you are looking for that kind of like old school, epic wartime yeah. movie yeah. with Jude Law with a beard, look no further. <laughs> Oh, along came Polly. The The movie itself is fine. But I, I have seen this movie so many times. And the only reason I watch it is because I'm just watching for the next Philip Seymour Hoffman scene. And that's <laughs> exactly. not a knock on the movie. It's just really a testament to how good he is. This is a different style for him. He uh, he's obviously he brings humor and comedy to all of his roles really does even in the heavy drama ones there's comedy there there's always you know, like i always say nothing's ever one thing but this is one where he really leans into the comedy and when i say leans in we're talking physicality this guy embodies what it means to be in a comedic role the, for christ's sake the opening scene the first time we <laughs> see the man he just does one of the best film falls i have ever seen he eats shit so convincingly like I don't 
And it's hard to fall on film. Like he oh, had yeah. to have actually fallen. That's all there is. It- <laughs> There's no other way around it. He just did that. All totally every take. Eats it. Had you and- ever heard the word shark before? <laughs> I had never heard the word shark. I, I had heard the word shark before. I had not. I remember watching it and and when he's so delicate he goes, I sharted. I laughed. But the funnier part is, is listening to him in such delicate, whispering fashion explain the phenomenon of sharding. <laughs> it's like, I, sh- I, I, I farted, little shit came out. I sharted. We need to leave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he's so serious that, oh, I love when he's kind of, everything's revealed and he's like, I'm so stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. When, when this podcast comes out, you bet your ass that I will be putting up the entire basketball scene of oh. the rain dance, let <laughs> it rain, white chocolate, all of these just, it, it's just truly one of the funniest scenes for no reason. It's just him being hilarious. That's all it is. And it's incredible. Absolutely hilarious. Okay, so. This is a big one. Yeah, we arrive at probably the landmark, the movie that certainly one will always be talked about the most when you're talking about Philip Seymour Hoffman. It is Capote. He's playing Truman Capote. He won seemingly every single award possible for this, including the Oscar. And I'm just going to put this whole thing into context and just be absolutely perfectly honest. He was winning so much that I got a little... I felt a little resentment brewing because I loved Heath and Brokeback Mountain so much. And that performance while nominated for everything, was completely ignored by everyone because Capote, Truman Capote, this was just a storm and it was taking over everything. And that's not that it's so silly to resent a performer for (laughs) delivering such great work because he's so good in this. And this is a movie that I appreciate. I certainly appreciated more after he passed away and that even rewatching it for this, I was I'm like, this is unlike anything else he did. And I think because it was so talked about and so awarded, people, uh, I lost a little sight of that. Like, I lost sight of the fact of how much he dwarfs himself and yeah. how small he has to make himself just by virtue of the way Truman Capote looked. And, of course, there's the voice, but he's still maintaining this, like, fuck you, New York attitude. And, you know, like yeah. his scenes with Catherine Keener, like that at the movie premiere – He's such an asshole. He's so, yeah. I don't see what all the fuss is about. And that's when I was rewatching it, I went, they really don't make these movies anymore. They don't no. make these biopic movies where they're showing their subject as a flawed person, which mm-hmm. Truman Capote was because, spoiler alert, we're all flawed. So showing mm-hmm. him is like very envious and just being an envious asshole of his friend's good fortune. I really like mixing that with his other, you know, stuff in there, the quiet stuff with the inmates and then his scenes with Bruce Greenwood. I'm a huge Bruce Greenwood fan, but... Oh, yeah, I was going to say it's your boy. Oh, God, I love Bruce Greenwood. This is a performance that deserves to be as heralded as it did. I wish either this came out in 2004, Brokeback Mountain came out. I wish they didn't come out the same year, but, you know, I shouldn't put so much emphasis on the Oscars either. I'm certain Philip Seymour Hoffman didn't, but I'm glad, you know, of course, I'm glad that he won. This was the first Oscar he was nominated for, and he won, and then he was nominated three subsequent times, but this was his only Best Actor nomination, and he win, he won, and, you know, it's it's kind of sad to see it now because he's so good in it, and you're like, oh, man, 
I can't believe I ever gave this movie or him any flack because of some fucking award show. But yeah, he's he's great and deserves all the acclaim. And Heath Ledger had actually gone on record to say that one of his favorite performances that he'd ever seen was this performance. Yep. Like at the time he was saying that. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It, it really is a movie that the performance was so revered at the time. You go back 16 years later and watch it now. It's that good, man. It, it just floored. And, you know, one thing I noticed about him that's very, very evident in this is that there is a power in stillness. And he is a master at this. Yeah. When you watch something where the stillness is everything, every little gesture becomes so meaningful. Mm -hmm. And he's so still. But when all of a sudden he raises his glass with the detail of the pinkies Every gesture is so noticeable and felt that it completely informs you to who this guy is. And if he was talking to you in the room, but it, it's so specific and it's not a complete imitation. It's taking what that is because you can't deny it. That voice is the voice, but you hear Phil in it and you hear just that's his voice on a higher register he is just letting it. He's found where it sits in him organically and letting that go. Yeah, and he really services the movie as a whole well. I mean, it, it is a, it's a Philip Seymour Hoffman vehicle, certainly. But Oh, my God, the, yeah. The movie wouldn't even remotely succeed if it wasn't no, for him. So absolutely God. not. And then next up, I love this. He wins an Oscar, and then he goes straight to playing the heavy in this massive movie, Mission Impossible 3. He was so warm with Tom Cruise and Magnolia. Now he's in this full-on rage mode. And what's interesting about this is that now it's a thing where the Mission Impossible movies, they open with the cold open. It's something crazy, like he's hanging off a plane. He's doing hanging off a mountain, doing some crazy shit. This one opens with a flash forward where they're about to kill Tom Cruise's girlfriend. And it's not even like just none of the other Mission Impossible movies do that. And I love that it it's so strong. They're like, yeah, we, we don't have to do the cold open here because we're just going to see Philip Seymour Hoffman like flipping out <laughs> and like counting yep. to 10. And that's enough. And it really, really works. Oh, man, he's just good. This, you know, it's oh, Mission Impossible 3, it, but it's, he's good. At it. He's amazing at it. And it's so entertaining. And it, 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 it shows like because he had not ever really done anything like that. Right. Right. He, especially up until that point. Like, yeah, so I think that's what you do, man. Like, you win your Oscar, then to follow it, you go and make the blockbuster. Because exactly, it's the exclamation point. And because he delivers, he's not just sitting around phoning that in. Like, that is a very fun, just, it's again, specific performance. Like, he... He's taking that shit seriously, and but just having a blast while he's doing it. But that's what he does. All of his movies, he's having fun. Like you can absolutely tell. Like his his love for acting, it just pours out of every performance. Even as like a cliched villain in a huge blockbuster, it still works. That's his James Bond villain. That's who he is. That's yeah, the James Bond. Yeah, villain. exactly. Next up is a movie I only saw once. I was so happy I rewatched oh, it for this because yes. I remembered the Savages, but not definitely did not hit like this and just seeing it now him his chemistry with Laura Linney they're playing siblings is so good and this whole thing leads to that incredible monologue of piss and shit and rotten stink like that outburst yep. is like 
oh, that's why you cast Philip Seymour Hoffman, because he can land you right there and distill your whole movie down into one line and and may not be pretty, but there's your movie. And, and that's uh, I love this movie because this uh, it, it was shot and took place in Buffalo, New York, my hometown at a time where uh, no movies were ever being shot there. And this is the one movie that if anyone is who's never been to Buffalo really kind of wants to know what it looks like. This is the one. This is exactly what <laughs> Buffalo looks and feels like down to the interiors of the apartments. I feel like they actually shot those in some Buffalo places because the, those browns, that drabness, that's that's <laughs> Buffalo. Um, the stark trees, the snow, it's all there. So this movie definitely holds a personal special place in my heart, but what I think is the most remarkable thing about the performances is that the history of life between two siblings is always a tricky thing to pull off. We talk a lot about that mm-hmm. in our shame podcast, imagining what that history between those two are that was clearly defined by the actors. Obviously, this is a very different different set of people, but nevertheless, that same history has truly been filled by these actors you really feel that this is brother and sister they grew up with this family their quirks their idiosyncratic little qualities that are there and their relationship to their parents and themselves is so so specific that that's what makes the movie shine to me and i'm so glad you got to rewatch this because yeah this is one of my favorites i i really really love this movie i think it's a great little indie darling yeah I, it i felt compelled to go back to it because it's one that not a lot of people talk about now but it did get a nice like indie darling push when it was released but it doesn't it deserves to be seen don't let it you know just fade into indie obscurity One of the joys about watching, because when I research the actors or even the directors we cover in the podcast, I do my best to track their career in order. And one of the reasons I do that is because you go like in the same day, you can watch Capote when he's so kind of, you know, muted and small. And then two movies later, you're watching Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. And you're seeing this completely unraveled man in Andy and maybe the most ferocious intense character he played Sidney Lumet's last movie I love before the devil knows you're dead I always have this is um there's some scenes in here that are hard to watch because his character is a heroin addict and it is I'm always I always want to applaud people who struggle with this in real life and then play these characters and he's doing this sober because he was sober and I, I just I cannot imagine and you know he he plays a heroin addict very, very well, and that's it's disturbing to watch, but wow, this is a powerhouse of a movie, powerhouse of a performance. The way he's just unraveling at the end, and he's like shaking so violently as he's about to fire that gun in that apartment, just, and oh man, and him and Ethan Hawke, who together, uh, they are fucking brilliant together. They're so good back and forth. The, I love uh, my, one of, I, I do too. This is one of my all-time favorites. The... um. The scene where, without trying to give too much away about it, but it's kind of like the 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 start of the whole entire story of the movie is where Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ethan Hawke are brothers, and PSH, we'll just shorten it, is trying to get Ethan Hawke on board with a plan. Mm-hmm. This scene they have in his office is it's it's perfect, man. It's just 
you're talking about great writing with great performance with the great Sidney Lumet helming it. And that's what that scene is. How do I get my brother to agree to do this thing? What do I need to do to get him to feel good, to feel motivated, to stroke the ego? And vice versa, Ethan Hawke is where he's at in his life being asked of a thing that he doesn't want to do. Ultimately, the scene ends with Ethan Hawke saying yes. So whatever happens in between that is all acting. And good God, is it so great to watch those two just play in that. And the little subtle digs and the little things, the expressions that you can only really get on film. Just amazing. And then just to cap it off, that scene in the car where he cries with Marissa Tomei in the passenger seat. Yeah. It's never enough. It's never enough. It's an all-timer acting scene, just losing his fucking mind, and then starts crying at the end. Oh, Dad. Oh, Dad. Oh, my God. Yeah. It, it's a heavy movie. It's, it's really a tough sit. One of the things that's so cool about it is that I love when these caper movies, it's not like they're trying to steal $100 million. Like, the final nut that he breaks it down to of how much they're going to walk away with, in terms of movie capers it's not a lot yeah and even the amount he offers him as like here's your little cherry on top here's two grand like fucking two grand like wow huh that that's and that means so much to ethan hawk like that's a so much money in his world in both of their worlds and i really like that it makes it it's more relatable that way when what they're talking about knocking off and how much money they're going to make you're like that actually is pretty realistic and it's it's sadder is it really worth doing all this it's so much sadder because you're like yeah it's you're doing all this for that little amount i mean 60 grand 60 grand but it's not worth you know ruining your whole life over i don't think but i'm um, you know He's addicted to heroin. He has all this lay, all these extra yep. layers going on that every little amount matters. It's yeah, it's a really heavy movie. What a big swing for Lumet to go out on. My God, Albert it's, Finney is fucking great too. Jesus. Yeah, one worth seeing for sure. Did you know for twenty four years people have been trying to kill me? People who know how. <laughs> now, do you think that's because my dad was a Greek soda pop maker? Or do you think that's because I'm an American spy? <laughs> oh my god! I mean, fucking child. <laughs> Charlie Wilson's War. Gust, the CIA spy. Gust. Like he gets nominated for an Oscar for this, which is great. But I mean, that first scene—it's uh, it's perfect. Mike Nichols, perfect. Aaron Sorkin. He's just like arguing with John Slattery. And this this has nothing to do with the movie, nothing. But I love yep. it so much. And oh my god, the way he delivers now. Do you think that's because my dad was a Greek soda pop maker? Is just oh my god, it's absolutely brilliant. This was a movie at the time when I was like, oh, I kind of, I guess I was expecting more, whatever the hell that means. And now with each passing, each passing time I've checked this movie out, I love it more and more. Dude, and particularly so do I. because of him. He's, he's so good. I mean, that scene with, the, you know, Tom Hanks, do you drink? And he's like, oh God, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pouring the scotch and he just keeps going, don't be a fucking idiot. I bugged the scotch. It's, oh man. It's, it's a very, for, for the, is rageful outbursts. Uh, that that opening scene is <laughs> Gus yeah. is a very interesting character to watch because he does not trust anybody. No one like he no can't one. due to his job. So watching a, as this story progresses and what's being done in the execution of it, he is like subtly being like, yeah, is this really a thing? You really gonna 
I don't believe it, but so far you've kind of proved everything right, but when's the shoe going to drop? And I've never heard someone just sing dialogue that's of a political nature so effortlessly. So effortlessly, yes. A lot of the, his dialogue that he has is jargon that no one really knows. And he so sells many of these so well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and you get it. You just get it. And I think that's a testament to, well, Aaron Sorkin's writing, of course, but not everyone can play it that well. And Philip Seymour Hoffman makes that shine. But I really like this movie. I think this is probably one of the most accessible and enjoyable political movies one could watch. Yeah. It's yeah. it's light all the way through. Even when the stakes are high. Right, exactly. That's just what I'm going to say, because if you're paying attention and you listen to his speech to Tom Hanks at the end, he's essentially predicting 9-11. And he's like, yeah, you can't just leave like you you got to. And then he, he convinces him. So then Tom Hanks goes and tries to he's like, you know, if we if we just like leave now, this may not work out for us because we and then, you know, there you go. It's something. Oh, man. And. Yes, he's so untrustworthy, but so damn intelligent. And just the way he kind of just shuffles around and he's like always the only one smoking. Yes, love it. The cynical humor, the downplayed deliveries on things when he's not having outbursts. It's again, that's that specificity. So in January 2010, a lot of people are releasing their best movies of the decade list. Of the you know of the aughts, and Roger Ebert had always had a great great voice and a very influential voice, and he goes full stop hard in the paint for Schenectady, New York, and calls that his favorite film of the decade. That makes everyone either watch the film for the first time, or in my case, rewatch it with an entirely new lens. Because I mean, I, come on, I did not understand like <laughs> hardly any of this the first time I saw it. That's Charlie Kaufman. It's his first movie as a director. Uh, I don't, oh God, what is this movie about? It, it's about the futility of life, of love, of life and death. It, it's, it's about everything. And yeah, I don't is. know if anyone else could have played it quite the way that Philip Seymour Hoffman did. I don't know if I don't know if the movie would work without him. If I didn't have him to latch onto and his full commitment, who I don't know from scene to scene, like how the fuck do you know how to play this scene with this character? Like he has a command over completely intentionally on the surface nonsensical material. And that in and of itself is a feat. And he is worth following until the bitter end of this movie. And this movie is a journey and Roger Ebert, I mentioned the Ebert thing because it really made me appreciate it in a different way. And then this was also one of the first movies I went to after Hoffman died because I'm like, this is, this has got everything in it. Let me go see what he was doing. And man, yeah, this is one hell of a trippy movie. Jesus. It's, it's a lot. I just saw it for the very first time last night. I know. <laughs> I, I had. I, How you feeling? Fuck, man. Um, I mean, there's just, at a certain point, you just have to kind of surrender to that movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I mean, of course. What can I really say? Like, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around some of the things that were brought up. But in terms of just this conversation, Philip Seymour Hoffman has this one quality about him that it's just something that you can't teach. In every performance he has, he has a certain amount of sadness that just lives in his eyes. Mm-hmm. I personally find this quality to be one of the most 
curious and infectious things about a performer. Montgomery Clift had it. Oh yeah, like absolutely. they're like it's in his shoulders. It it just permeated through everything. And yeah. and this is not to say that these people are miserable in their life. It, it it's just a certain thing that exists that just makes every little thing that that actor does that much more nuanced. Because even when Twister, when he's got the bright sunny face, you still look into his eyes. There's just like a little hint of sadness. I just kind of find that that's just a quality that I enjoy seeing in, a, in an actor. It just gives them another layer to me of something that's underneath that's just living there. And I love that. And um, John Gazelle is like the ultimate sadness oh behind the eyes. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, we talked about yeah. that. Perfect right. example. Right. I knew there was someone I was thinking of that had that. And clearly, yeah. Yeah. that was a guy who was not a miserable person in his life. It's just Correct. something exactly. that's there. And Phil had that. And I think it's really shown in this performance because he's living in a very melancholic, I guess if you really kind of wanted to bring up one specific state in this movie, because he's kind of everything. I like that about, I loved everything about his performance. I think you're right. I don't think that there's anyone else I could really latch onto in the way that could see me through the journey of what this movie brings you through. The ending got me. Yeah. That touched on my existential nerve endings that I struggle with and love about that whole way of thinking about life. Got It got me big time. Well, yeah. And like as an artist, isn't it, aren't we all like creating, some would say, some would argue, we're just making the same thing over and over and over. Yeah. And maybe we can't even get our shit together enough to actually make the thing. We just talk about the thing mm -hmm. a lot. Met a lot of people who have an idea for a movie and who talk about that idea, but they don't like, you know, put it into play for any number of reasons, for financial, whatever. Reasons. I'm just saying. Yeah. And this tackles all of that with a very odd, absurdist and melancholic lens. And it's, yeah, it's a great team teaming of Charlie Kaufman and Philip Seymour Hoffman, because both of those men clearly are no strangers to uh, sadness just in their work. I don't, I'm not yeah. commenting on their personal lives. I mean, in their work, they know how to uh, access it easily. I, I would love to hear how just how that went, because I think you brought it up in a conversation you and I were having where it's sort of someone like you walk into it. You're about to shoot that scene and be like, just tell me what you want me to do. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, well, what? I mean, you have to like have trust. You have to give in. Because yeah. I, there's so many different layers. Like, okay, am I Caden playing myself here? Is this the director of, uh, you know, there's so much like under, 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 under. We keep going under and under. Like, now we're going to cast this actor to play the assistant of the assistant, you know, all that shit. Oh, man. Yeah. Jump back to episode 22 of the podcast when we covered Amy Adams, and you're going to hear an in-depth breakdown of Doubt from 2008. He got nominated for Supporting Actor again for this, and an absolute joy to see him volley against Meryl Streep. Mm. Put two dynamite actors in the room screaming their fucking heads off at each other. Cool. I'm, I'm great. Just toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Put me next to Meryl. It's great. It's like watching a, a boxing fight, like a couple rounds of a boxing fight with two absolute acting titans. And that, as far as, you know, he goes, there, there's a lot, you know, did he or didn't he is one of the big questions of the movie. It's never answered intentionally. So wondering that the whole time and then watching him and letting it go both ways, like, okay, let me watch this movie that he did it. And, you know, let me watch this movie and assume that he did it. Then you watch the movie differently. Now let me watch this movie and assume that he did not do it. It's a completely different movie. And he he has the layers of that perfectly in there, the where you could go both ways. Look at my fingernails. 
They're a little long. I like them long, but they're clean. <laughs> Four sugars and the coffee. Oh, man. The Boat That Rocked, a.k.a. Pirate Radio. When I saw that movie, it was called Pirate Radio. He's a star in it. He's, you know, definitely game. It's so funny when they change movies like this. But mm-hmm. in the same kind of water theme, we're going to move quickly to Jacko's Boating, the only movie that Philip Seymour Hoffman directed. And he's also the star in it. This was much more in the vein. You know, I saw this once when it came out, and then I watched it again a few days ago. This is much more in the vein of like the next stop Wonderland 1990s New York movie where you're just watching people like be and they just have one small objective. Like I got to learn how to swim. I got to learn how to cook. I, I'm mentioning all this because when I saw it, I was I'm like, oh, I thought like, oh, that's it. That's it's his first movie. And that's what he's going to do. And then I watch it out. And I'm like, yeah, you asshole. Of course, that's it. He's working with John Ortiz, one of his friends. He's working with Amy Ryan, one of his friends. Like, this is what he wants to do. He wants to make a small, simple movie. His character. I did not remember his character as having as much eccentricities as he does. Yeah. He's very, you know, he's unwell. He's shy, timid, yep. and he's got a lot of repression going on there. And I, it was, you know, it was sad to rewatch this one, knowing that it was his only movie, but I really, really liked it a whole hell of a lot more than I did in 2010. Yeah. And this is the movie that he made with all of those people from lab, like John Ortiz, Daphne Ruben Vega. Like these are, these are his people and there's cameos by all these people that I knew as well, which is like why I like watching this movie because I'm just sort of like, man, that, that, that was that group. That was that community that, um, did everything together like they they made theater they worked they they pursued their art whether it was making a movie or not it didn't matter they were doing their thing and um the the acting in this movie is just so beautiful to watch like i love that one pool scene oh where yeah where yeah. john ortiz is teaching him this to swim it's such a simple like if you watch it and you should <laughs> um, the, he's just teaching him to go underwater and how to breathe. It's just very, very simple, but you feel the resistance that Philip Seymour Hoffman's characters has. And then when he succeeds at it, like that building joy and like, I can do better. I can do better. Like that excitement that there, it's so childlike. It is so beautiful to watch, and that's kind of what you're watching throughout this movie, is you're watching this one character kind of make these little steps into progression. But man, that freakout scene at the end with the with the food, oof. That it's like building up to that. It's it's kind of yep. like the whole the emotional arc of the movie is resting on the effectiveness of that scene and the way that not only he pulls it off, which you know he's going to because it's Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah. than everyone else around him. That's yep. that's the kind of the web that is created in that room. Um, wow, I mean, we haven't really even we've kind of touched as we've gone on the the Philip Seymour Hoffman flipouts, but is anyone better than him at it? Like when it sneaks yeah, its way into a movie, even like the Savages, when you don't think it's gonna come, and you're like, holy shit, here it is! Like, oh man, it's just he can get down in his voice and hit that register where you're like. Yeah, Whoa, what a command. Oh, man. Even in our next movie, The Ides of March, <laughs> he's not in it that much. But that that one like monologue he has in the hotel room, like loyalty, that's like that's it. And you, you go, man, oh, I yeah. love seeing him in a movie like Ides of March or I, I'll put it in tandem with Moneyball. These are the 2011 movies like he's not in these for very much. But when he is, you're just I mean, again, you just can't take your eyes off him, even if he's up against a, hev- a heavyweight like Brad Pitt, like. 
just seeing them in Moneyball, their tense conversations mm-hmm. with each other in those tiny, shitty little office rooms. And you're like, are these two going to fuck each other up? Like, it's just, it's always right there on the edge or they walk by each other in the hallway. And the way you're creating that much tension, oh man. And I love, you know, I love that in Moneyball, it's directed by Bennett Miller, who directed him to an Oscar for Capote. And I just love when that happens and you come back a few movies later and just do this uh, a smaller performance with not as many scenes, but you still absolutely kill it. And yeah, sorry to lump those together, but Paul's, Paul Zara, Ides of March, Art Howe, Moneyball, great, great performances right there. Oh, 100%. And and again, it's just the emotional life that he is just filled with in both of those, like especially in Moneyball, because Moneyball is just using that as an example because it does not end, the, end it very much. It doesn't have like a lot of dialogue. Mm-hmm. But you know exactly what he's thinking, what he's feeling. It's so charged when he's around Brad Pitt. There's like a kinetic energy. Like he's got his arms folded, but he's just like, I don't like you at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Fucking up my team, man. (laughs) So that brings us, I mean, God, we just, episode 46, Paul Thomas Anderson, we just did a deep dive on this, but it doesn't really get better than Lancaster Dodd in The Master as... as a PTA movie, as a culmination, you know, I say this with regret and with sadness, but as a, an ultimate culmination of their work together, it's like, wow, what this <laughs> going from Scotty J or better yet, going from annoying casino asshole and hard eight to Lancaster Dodd. It's like these two are who they are because of each other. Paul Thomas Anderson is a success in part because of the performances that he captured from Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman is a success, was a success in part because of these great characters that were written for him. And it's one of the great director-actor collaborations of our time. And of course, of course, terribly tragic that it was cut short, but wow, what, I mean, God, what a performance. We just talked about it, but still, it will always always hold up as arguably the last like truly astounding performance of his career in which his unassailable greatness is on full display. It's just a, I mean, powerhouse is always the right word to describe it, but I think it's because he is the most powerful he's ever been in a role. Yeah. Like he, he is King. He is controlling so much. And of course you could always ask yourselves if, is he really when you're watching the movie, but he right. carries himself as such. He is the poster for what he's trying to do. And the way he wields his command of power and things like that is just as compelling as anything you'll ever see. And playing off of the great Joaquin Phoenix character and Amy Adams, just watching everything he does, he is a master of his craft. He was a master of his craft. And that title for this role is very fitting. He's just that good. Yeah, absolutely. Should have won. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been going through the Oscars as we, you know, go his different nominations. We haven't really called them out, but this is one. I mean, this okay, so this is 2012 and you've got Alan Arkin for Argo, Robert De Niro Silver Linings Playbook, Philip Seymour Hoffman The Master, Tommy Lee Jones Lincoln, okay. Christoph Waltz wins for Django Unchained. At, at the time and now, I'm like Hey, I love Dr. King Schultz, but dude, you just won it three years ago for Inglorious Bastards. 
Lancaster Dodd. Like this is it. I, it was one of the things I just kind of laughed at and put my hands up. I'm like, I'm not, you're not going to see me or hear me go off that Christoph Waltz just won again. Like I'm not going to bitch and moan about it, but the master Lancaster Dodd is like right there. This is as good as acting gets that he blows those other four performances out of the fucking water. I mean, and, and of course, knowing what we know now, like it would have been, yeah, it would have been great if he could have ended his career with another win, but he absolutely should have won. People didn't know what to do with this movie. That's that's the problem. Yeah, People that's no really what, what to it do is. With it. Yeah, no, no one knew what to do with that. Ten years later, it's way, way more revered than it was in 2012. Another performance from 2012 is The Late Quartet. I just watched this for the first time, actually, in preparation for this. Good movie. Good, quiet movie. He's in it. Catherine Keener. It's always fun to see him play off her. Christopher Walken has a lot of more of like the, the bigger pool to do in the movie. Then he is cast in the Hunger Games franchise and in Catching Fire, kind of it ends with him. Like it's a big moment and a big reveal for his character to where like in the neck when the next movies come out, like he's gonna help the leading the resistance. And it's this it's kind of like twist, and you're like, oh cool. And it's a really it's really effective because he's just like looking into the camera and you know, like you're gonna help us. And then, you know, that's released in 2013, and we see him on screen on screen there and then the next time we hear about him uh he's died Mm -hmm. february 2nd 2014 and i I, you know i was living in la so when i woke up to this news and i had a bunch of text messages from people and what is going on right now like this is horrible like huh man you get that you get robin williams not even a few months later it was just that was those are two really really devastating losses and if you want to like know what Philip Seymour Hoffman meant to the community, there's a really, really great clip of Ethan Hawke on Charlie Rose talking about what Philip Seymour Hoffman meant to him. Rarely have I heard anyone breaking down uh, kind of the roots of depression, and he does it. Ethan Hawke does it so well here. And just say he, you know, he's talking about Hoffman and Robin Williams and just saying how like, you know, I, I worked with Philip Seymour Hoffman and before the devil knows you're dead. Like this shit did not come for free. He didn't, you know, he did not like access this rage or do this stuff for free. He wasn't doing this and then like going about his day. Like this, this stuff takes a toll and ah, it's, it's, it's a great clip as far as like, you know, Ethan Hawke expressing love for one of his friends. But the movies we, uh, you know, I was texting you about this, like the movies we get after he passes away, God's pocket, a Most Wanted Man and The Hunger Games Mockingjay parts one and two. They're just, they're, they were hard for me to watch then. They're hard for me to watch now. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing what we know about what was going on with him and demons and stuff. Uh, we're not going to get into that. That's not what this is about. But, it you know, I'm glad he got to work with his friends in God's Pocket. He gives a good performance in A Most Wanted Man and... The Hunger, you know, Hunger Games, it's like it. we're going back to when he's in Mission Impossible 3 and he gets a chance to be in these big movies. And it's kind of when you look at his career, when he was often in these big movies, that was usually to, you know, get money for like another few indies to come along. And yeah, what could have been what would have been who knows, but we're left with what we're left with. And we're left with one of the just best careers ever in terms of film, in terms of cinema and his work will live on. There's never, there's just never a bad time to go fire up some of these movies we're talking about. I mean, a lot of them were available for free or through various apps or, you know, Jacko's Boating was free on Tubi. Like it, the guy directed this movie, go watch it, folks. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. it's a really good, sweet movie. But after, I, I don't know, it just, 
after he passed away, that that kind of ends the conversation a little bit. I'm not trying to shade the other movies he was in, but yeah, they they remain difficult for me to watch, knowing the full context of everything that was going on. That's all. There's that to it, but at the end of the day, we're we have this career that it's like just needs to be celebrated, and because you, he truly was one of the greatest to ever do it. Like he his. His impact in the world of acting is, I mean, yeah, you listen to like that Ethan Hawke interview, listen to any actor who's worked with him that he's a part of, like it it meant the world to him. And he took it so seriously and passionately that any filmmaker or actor who like wants to go learn and see how you truly make those choices and be that specific and the embodiment, commitment, and everything that he brought, the energy and passion to his roles, they just shine. Every single performance is different. Every single one is unique, but every single one of them is him. And there is something to take away. Like he, you do not leave a Philip Seymour Hoffman performance. You do not feel like you've left a performance without having the human experience. Mm -hmm. I am so grateful that I became an actor. I am so grateful that I have experienced everything to this point in my life that I've experienced. And his work is one of the things that makes me proud to be an actor. And um, even with my story in the beginning of this pod, that's just a piece of it. That's just very cool. But it's the work, man. It's the work that matters, and he has given us so much to look at and study and take in. And and even if you're not there for all that, to just straight up enjoy, because he's just that enjoyable. Yes, and this brings us right to the most challenging part of this podcast, because out of the 63 oh. credits that are listed on IMDb, I have made it very fun for us that we're only allowed to pick five. And people, I know, Nick knows, this is an exercise in futility. It's just for fun. These could change tomorrow. I know every performance that I've mentioned so far in this podcast, let alone this top five, these are A-plus all-timer performances. Playing with the order of them is whatever. It's silly. It's just fun for us. That's all. It's fun. Like, right now when we're listening, give me your top five PSH. You want to do all of them? No, no, no. Just do one at a time. One at a time. Okay, one at a time. And remember, this is about the character, not about the movie. Yeah. So yes. For, yeah, yes. I, I know you know that, but yeah. Well, sometimes I don't, and it's good that we're. I know re- you don't. I was trying to be nice. <laughs> <laughs> so number five, gotta give it to it. Along came Polly. <laughs> I love that it's man. So so good, man. Like if you've never seen it, or anybody, go see it. You. He will make you have the best time. And if there's a flaw in my list, it's that I don't have any of his out-and-out funny performances like Sandy Mm -hmm. from Along Came Polly or Brant. But, you know, that's okay. There's still funny moments in them. But my number five, I'm going, God, I can't believe I'm even putting this at five. But I'm going with Jacob Belinsky, 25th Hour, the quiet, imploding schlub who, like, can't figure it out. But he's kind and lovable. And uh, again, he's like the smartest. Like, I love what he has to explain. Funny you should say that. <laughs> and then they're all trying to explain it. He's like, you're the, you're the teacher, man. Why don't you explain it? It's just, uh, God, I, yeah. And, you know, cool dog at the end is, is a really nice moment. The way he has to act 
during the beating oh. is really specific because you can see his intelligence. Like he and you see him like it's the only time he really gets riled up in the movie and just him looking at Barry Pepper and being like, Frank, he doesn't mean it. He doesn't mean this. And then Norton knows uh, the only way I can get Frank to act up here is if I punch punch Jake and that's what has to happen. And the way that everyone knows the stakes and knows what's going on, it's just it's well played. So yeah, number five, 25th hour. Number four, I'm going with Flawless. Ooh, nice. Rusty. For its time and for the way that that holds up now, that's what I love. That's why I challenge people to watch that one now and see where you kind of feel about that in the culture and times that we're living in where maybe that performance like that might be scrutinized. But I dare you. I dare you to scrutinize <laughs> that performance from him because you can't. It's that good. Oh, so good. Number four for me, Owning Mahoney. Oh, man. Oh. Quiet addiction. He's just completely like unspooling. <laughs> He's, uh, I mentioned it, but he played characters with addiction very, very well. And this is, this is interesting because it's gambling. So if you like, this movie has nothing thematically or tonally in common with uncut gems. But if you watch that and you're like, why the fuck can this guy not stop? Why can he not stop making bets? This, again, not the same level of energy, but owning Mahoney in terms of gambling addiction even touches on that more. You're like, you, you keep asking why, but then you get it because you just watch him and you're like, oh man, this, God, this poor guy, <laughs> he can't stop. He just can't. He has no idea how. Uh. I was so excited. Uh, number three, I'm going with the role that won him the Oscar, Capote. And this is what's crazy because that didn't even make my top five. But like, of course, that's that's an it's an all timer performance. Yeah, I had to give it to him. There was one that I was gonna just throw like switch out that I hate that's not in there, but I had to give it to Capote. Number three for me, before the devil knows you're dead. Whew. Oh. I think this this could probably be his most explosive and vile character. And I say that having like so we have sixty three acting credits. I watched. I've watched. Um, I'll just say a number of those in order prepping for this pod. And I, yeah, he's very fucking vile and does not have a redeemable quality and plays him uh, to perfection. Go figure before the devil knows you're dead. Number two from you. No uh, Paul Thomas Anderson on our list so far. Very interesting. Until now, because we got the master for me coming in. That's my number two. two. That's mine, Lancaster Dodd. Yeah, it's just, it's that good. It's that good. That was my number two. Lan yeah, Lancaster Dodd. I do think it's his last great performance. Really uh, a titanic performance, honestly. The rage, the contradictions, my God. Now we're right up at number one for both of us. There's no way it's going to be the same. That'd be that'd be awesome if it was. There's no way, though. No, they're, they're, I think it's the same. <laughs> do you want to say it at the same time? Let's say it at the same time. <laughs> Three, two, one, Patch Adams. Love, Liza. <laughs> no all joking aside yeah love lies i thought that might be number one um can't argue with that at all i'm actually going with magnolia uh. i am going with phil and i am saying that as on our pta one we you know we were talking about favorite characters at the end and favorite performances yeah. and i said lancaster dodd but um just knowing everything we know now about his life about whatever demons he had as as we all do and just i love the humanity of this performance and yeah living my own life and i you know i mentioned the pta pod having to actually do that morphine drip thing with my mom it's like yeah there's a there's a level of humanity that i access in phil parma that that is just very very rare to come by in a film acting performance and it's not the movie he was in the most it's not a starring role but yeah i think today i feel very 
confident saying that that is my favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, which is not meant to take anything away from anything. Like, Love Liza. No. God, it's fucking it's, great in it. You can't. There's no such thing as a bad performance. I love it. That's your number one. I actually didn't expect that. Dude, Love Liza, that movie, uh, that that's synonymous with me in, in just the performance and the movie itself. Like, that, that movie, uh, I love it. I love that movie a lot. All right. What are you watching? I'll go first because, I you know, I prepared. We've gone through what we've gone through in this podcast. And if anyone can tell what Philip Seymour Hoffman means to me, what acting means to me, um, there's another actor who I look up to in a very similar way, almost more so because I I kind of look to his career, and that is uh, the great Ethan Hawke. There you go. Uh, But I really feel my passion about acting lives in the essence of those two. Um, so I wanted to pick an Ethan Hawke movie to kind of round out my Phil feelings. And so obviously go see Before the Devil Knows You're Dead because you get both of them. But um, I'm going to recommend First Reformed for my What Are You Watching? Because yeah. I feel like that is a movie that it's it's an actor's movie. Ethan Hawke, uh, I mean, arguably never been better. Completely robbed of, of a, at least a nomination. Ridiculous. It, it, watching Ethan Hawke's career from where he was as a young man to everything that he is and now that he's getting older and and just seeing how much better he continues to get it's just very inspiring to me in a way that I'm always inspired whenever I watch Ethan Hawke I'm always inspired when I watch Philip Seymour Hoffman so I really link those two for me personally as an actor together so I want to recommend a really solid Ethan Hawke performance go see First Reformed if you haven't it's awesome yeah, I'm just actually reminded that you recommended Love Liza as your what are you watching for episode 31 and the movies that inspired you to direct, yep. which is really kind of cool, kind of cool. And that was that was a huge, huge movie for me for There I Go. Huge. The first reform love is always going to be something that is welcome on this podcast. The fact that he didn't get nominated is absolutely absurd. And I liked it. Yeah, latching on to an actor that meant a lot to you, one that they liked each other a lot. They worked together well. I was thinking, like, I love Laura Linney, and I loved watching them in The Savages. And you've heard me reference a few times about, like, the homegrown, like, indie films of the late 90s, early 2000s. Kenneth Lonergan's You Can Count On Me fits really, really perfectly in that. Yeah, and that's, like... That's the movie that made me fall in love with Laura Linney. So, uh, you know, we have like these turning points, like maybe Boogie Nights makes me fall in love with Philip Seymour Hoffman or Magnolia or something. Yeah. But, you know, I've seen like Laura Linney in Primal Fear. I, you've seen her in stuff, uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer. And then just given this quiet, devastating performance, perfect chemistry with Mark Ruffalo. This is one that, yeah, it just, it doesn't get talked about enough. You can count on me. So good. So simple, so effective. I love this movie. Everything. I, I love that too because I love Kenneth Lonergan. I love everything that guy writes and does, and and yeah. then that, that's really on point too because that's another New York guy, just like Phil. Mm-hmm. It's all this kind of same, same vibe, same energy, same kind of like like attitude. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, we did it, Philip Seymour Hoffman. We love mm. you. We miss you. What great work! Oh my God, just go watch some of his movies anytime. It's never a bad time to watch a PSH movie, you know? Let us know your favorites at WAYW underscore podcast on Twitter because everyone has different favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman performances. Yeah. And we want to hear them. And go watch Owning Mahoney on YouTube. Who cares? That's the only way you can watch it. Do it. (laughs) As always, thanks so much for listening and happy watching. 
Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. Send us mailbag questions at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com and we'll answer those on the show. Or find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Next time, we're going to take a quick look at the 2022 Oscar nominations, which are out on February 8th, and I'm sure they're just going to be real, real great. Stay tuned. Titanic episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Withrow, and I'm joined by my best man, Nicholas Dostal. Nicholas. I like it. I've never said Nicholas. Well, we're going with the guy who uses the full three (laughs) names.